Hello. Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? Curious Fox, episode 11. Consider this 2019 recap. Um. <laughs> <laughs> my my job here is done. <laughs> it's just like technical head. I'm sorry. Let me just take on my technical head and actually show up on the podcast. Sure. Welcome to episode 11. <laughs> Welcome to episode 11 of the Curious Fox podcast. It's a podcast for those who challenge the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Evie Blue. We are keeping up with our intention to do episode a month. We have this one and we have one more to go and we will have fulfilled our promise to you of doing an episode a month. And it's been an exciting journey. And this month, we are going to give you a bit of a recap on our annual conference, Consider This, which happened November 17th, a couple of weeks ago. It feels like forever ago. <laughs> uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um and it was, um, if we say so ourselves, a success. Mm -hmm. um, pretty and, proud of us. Yes, exactly. I'm pretty proud of, pretty proud of us. Uh, just to give you a quick background on Consider This, this is the third time we're doing this. Um, and it is essentially a condensed version of our year-round programming. So all year round, Curious Fox uh, has programming for those who challenge the status quo and love sex and relationships. And this programming looks like peer panel discussions and expert-led events and workshops and seminars and gatherings and parties and connection-heavy um, experiences. And for one day a year, we condense all of that into a single event. We start early, we finish late, and we have panels and speakers and connection and entertainers entertainers and uh we do it all in one day uh, we just did that and it was awesome yeah and so we thought that we so in addition to planning events we also do a podcast which you're listening to and so we thought we would share out the details from that day i am jacqueline missla i am the chief operator of the foxes here <laughs> curious fox <laughs> that's Effie blue and Effie is the founder of curious fox and in it, it we are a few days away from thanksgiving here in the states and i think that we are in holiday mode a little bit and i think that we finished up the event and we're thrilled and excited and have been doing a post-mortem and have been planning for 2020 and so our head is like in the future and so we have decided that we're going to bring you along in that journey and tell you about the experience of consider this tell you about the day and and give you a snapshot into what's going to happen next year. And so in case you missed it, if you were there, it was fantastic. It was amazing. And you'll be able to access the videos online. And we'll tell you at the end of the podcast how. If you missed it, we're going to walk you through what happened that day. We're going to give you some behind the scenes and tell you about some of the highlights that happened for us. We started off the day by talking about 
the fact that actually last year I was a participant sitting on the other side of Consider mm-hmm. This. I was I had yet to join the Curious Fox family. And I remember feeling nervous and hopeful as I walked into the Consider This space. I'd never been to a conference like that before. Consider This, as Effie said, is a day of challenging the status quo and love, sex, and relationships. And so I didn't know what that meant and what that would look like. We've talked about it as if uh, Ted and Sex Expo had a baby. It would mm-hmm. be Consider This. Mm-hmm. And so while that's intriguing, you have no idea what that means until you walk in. And I remember also feeling really hopeful. Um, I was on the the opening up my journey at that point and was really hoping that I would hear and see and connect with something that would help me and feed me in that journey. And it did. And so we started off the day by giving that context, by acknowledging that the people in the audience, some folks, this was the first thing that they've ever been to like mm-hmm. this and other mm-hmm. folks, they're part of this community and come to all of our events. Mm-hmm. And so acknowledging all forms of, of folks who showed up and, and why. And then Effie led us in some movement activity. Right, right. I I think it was important for me to acknowledge that most of the people in that room who chose to be in that room on a Sunday Mm -hmm. from noon till six, six, interested in listening to talks and panels about the stuff is inevitably, you can almost guarantee that they're all intellectuals, that they live in their heads and they use their bodies, me included, um, to essentially carry their heads around yes. um, because that's the type of folk that you know is going to be in that space. And for me, that was the case for a long time. And I then discovered movement, um, intentional movement, so movement meditation for me, and that changed things for me. I really was able to connect my intellectual muscles with my actual muscles and that elevated things for me and I was able to tap into myself more and I think I just wanted to bring that into the room for just for a few minutes and so we and start with fun as yeah, well exactly, exactly. <laughs> we'll this way. yeah exactly um so we did some shaking around we did some shaking and wiggling and it was fun <laughs> yeah it was fun and we got kind of unified and um it was fun it was good it was, way to, it was a good way to get into our body and I also mm-hmm. find that when you sort of sit down at a conference you like immediately start fidgeting and it's hard to settle yeah. but I feel like if you get up and like do some very intentional movement when you sit back on your chair it's like a <sighs> yeah, and you're like settled and yeah. you're like, okay, now I can focus. Yeah. And it's interesting because you, you, as a part of being intentional and having fun, we wanted to make sure that we had a guide through this experience mm-hmm. that would bring that energy and that fun. And so in your journeys in this work, you came upon this incredible comedian who we then quickly asked to join us and be a part of it and, and, and continue that on that, that movement and that fun and that creativity throughout the course of the day. For sure. Her energy was amazing. Amazing. Maria he- uh, Maria Heineg. Um, I met Maria well, as a part of her show, uh, My Body, My Jokes, that she does. It's a, it's a, it. it's a series, uh, as a show that she does. And it's about, um, she takes current issues, um, especially mostly women's issues, but current, current issues. And then she combines comedians and experts um, on a, you know, on a brief show, she, she holds it at caveat. And she asked me to be a panelist on, I mean, she asked me to be an expert on, on breakups and she was talking about breakups and um she got she somebody connected me to her and she was like would you do this and i was like okay fine yes it's intimidating because i'm not i'm not yeah. a comedian you know right. and she was like come on to my stage of comedians and i'm like right you don't want to be the joke <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right, exactly exactly um and my experience with her was that she was super helpful like mm-hmm. i went onto that stage i felt very supported by her very like I wasn't going to be the joke that she yeah. was like, just come and do your thing. Like, we just need your expertise. We'll do the funny. 
and yeah. so it was it was great so when we decided to do that uh, and looking for a femc i was like yeah that mm -hmm. woman she's gonna be super like best energy on stage that we're gonna have so, she did yeah. she helped carry it and did great transitions and was amazing we got to have her back doing something yeah yeah and look her up she also does a um, podcast called the worst thing the worst thing podcast it's on itunes and everywhere else you find and she's um she has a bunch of shows uh, as i said your your body your my body my jokes is also another thing so catch her wherever you can she's awesome yeah and so then uh our next our first presenter that started us off was sari cooper she is a certified sex therapist she actually founded sex esteem she's the founder and director and was our sponsor which was the center for love and sex and she's a really interesting concept that she explored for us as we started off, which was about how do we build our sex esteem? Mm -hmm. And in it, she talks about these five C's that really are the foundation for that work, which is calm, confidence, curiosity, communication, and creativity. And she talked, it went through each of those and explored kind of through some storytelling what those, how those different things took place in our relationships and how we can benefit from leaning into those things. And what was really interesting for me was this idea of reclaiming the word selfish mm -hmm. and thinking about how for us to be selfish, even though it's a word that we reject often in our intimacy, in knowing our needs, that that actually will improve our sex life, mm -hmm. will improve our intimacy. Um, and you and I talked about that a little bit too, that, that you really, that resonated with you reclaiming that word. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, like you said, we, you know, we never, we never, you know, being a selfish lover is not a good thing. Nobody goes around saying, I'm a selfish lover. I'm amazing. Right. So it's kind of initially when you hear this idea of what she's saying, which is about, you know, she's really bringing this word selfish into the way that you might want to think about your sex life. And, and, and so it really makes you like, huh, what's, what's you talking about? Mm -hmm. And when you listen in and what essentially what she's saying, you know, is being self-centric and, and not an exclusive way, but so that you show up knowing yourself and knowing what you want and what you need and being able to express all that stuff. And when you, when you can be like that, when you can show up like that, then you can align with your lover. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. And it, within that, she was talking at some point about being like sure-footed and feeling balanced. Mm -hmm. And she talked about, and she actually demonstrated this on stage, when you are leaning too far into a relationship mm -hmm. or when you are trying to pull away from a relationship, mm -hmm. in either of those cases, you are not balanced. Like you can fall down essentially at any moment. And I thought that that was an interesting visual. Like I think that helped connect me to those moments when I feel like I'm either leaning in too much because I am, there are wounds that I am not addressing internally and I'm leveraging my relationship too heavily to, to fix those wounds or the opposite of that, where I'm trying to protect myself and really not addressing things and pulling away that in neither of those states can I be balanced, which means that I can't be thoughtful about what I need, which means that I can't have sex esteem and really have true intimacy. And so all those and that's those dots I thought were really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, you know, you can't really show up for a relationship unless you show up for yourself first. Mm -hmm. And I would even argue that the sort of the selfish that we know, um, sort of like you only think of yourself and not others. If, you, if you're not in, in tune with yourself, if you're mm -hmm. not self-aware and if you're not self-reflecting, then actually you're showing up as selfish because you're not available to give direction. Right. You're not available to guide people in, you know, towards your pleasure. You're kind of saying, well, figure it out. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like you're not guiding, you're not meeting the person in the middle. Mm -hmm. So I, I would, I really like that, that sort of shifting of the word selfish mm -hmm. and um, really using it to encourage people to look within first and get centered using this, the, the five models that she talks about, the five pillars that she talks about, calm, confidence, curiosity, communication, and creativity and end up being a, a, a great lover through 
through having a, a almost a selfish attitude. Yeah, absolutely. So same, check her out. She's a sex therapist, founder of uh, Sex Esteem and the Center of Love and Sex, and someone who I believe will continue to work with in the coming new year. She has sure. really interesting ideas. Yeah. Then she was followed by Thomas Whitfield. Thomas is a, he's a YouTube star. So he has a, a show on YouTube called Shit They Won't Talk, Tell You in Sex Ed. He has a column in Get Out, which talks, uh, is Thomas Talks? Thomas Talks, yeah. Thomas Talks About. Yes, that's in right. In Get Out magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a therapist. He's a researcher. He's a writer. Really interesting person. Really dynamic. Yes. Funny. Yes, yes. F- yeah, exactly. Funny and 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 amazing to work with you know let's let's give you a bit of a peek to the behind the scenes of how we pull this thing together there's like a ton of people we have to coordinate we had uh, um four speakers uh nine panelists mm-hmm. um on stage then we had backstage crew we mm-hmm. had volunteers two we performers had two performers so, mm-hmm. so this is an army of people we're trying to coordinate so um i have to say thomas was probably the easiest person to work with he yeah. was on time with everything that we need from him it was detailed he got it straight away he showed up on time um super pro big yeah, fan i'm a big fan um, and his content was, was his talk was amazing um, yeah it was interesting so he was talking about stis and his experience with that and his body and essentially how stis improved his life yeah which is not something that we would ever think, yeah, think not of. at all, not at all. And even in the work that I actively do through um, the play party etiquette work that I do all about, um, really it's, it's, it's about how to navigate sex parties, but the content of, of the, 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 the knowledge that is in that work is about how to really um, be a um, safe and consensual lover and, and, and think about your, your, um, sexual health and your desire and have good communication around that and a lot of and I talk about destigmatizing um, STIs in that work all the time I even give the you know the anecdote of how nobody really dies from herpes and if somebody gave you herpes you would you know hate them for the rest of your life but if somebody gave you the flu you would forget them by the time your fever breaks and people die from influenza every year mm. it's just just a clear stigma it's not really a real threat and so i do a lot of destigmatization around work around around sdis what i loved about thomas's work was he took it to a step further and mm. he was like you know what it might even just be a um a growth opportunity mm. it might be a way to like settle into intimacy in relationships it might really be a good way to like practice like courage to speak up in relationships Mm -hmm. Um, i thought it was it was really smart yeah i thought so too he so part of what he talked about was in the the pain and the ongoing cost of holding in a secret he found out at some point i think he was in his early 20s Mm -hmm. that he had hpv and then didn't say anything about it didn't go actually didn't go check it out didn't go to the doctor didn't deal with it and it wasn't until he was a relationship a few years later and his partner really encouraged him to go check it out and and go through the steps that he realized that holding on to that secret and that shame Mm -hmm. was actually holding back his growth and holding back the level of physical and emotional intimacy that he could have with his partners and that when he finally accepted it when he named it several years later then he went onto his podcast and his YouTube channel and he talked about it Mm -hmm. and that how freeing that was both how terrifying it was but then how freeing and I thought that that was really interesting and, and certainly that resonated with me around all of the times that we are so scared to say the thing and we hold that so tight mm. and that burden weighs us down. And finally, when you walk through the fire and you say the thing, 
and and the relief of it. And even if the worst thing happens, happens, and you know you do feel shame or there is like there's a, still a lightness there that you're not carrying carrying with you. And and I think that was one of the things that he said was really important to him in his journey, and actually why made this SDI experience impactful and positive for him is that it taught him how to say the thing and how to release the burden and the shame. Absolutely. And absolutely. And I think I can totally imagine also once you have that conversation with the person, Mm -hmm. there really isn't any conversation you can't have. You know, it really sets a solid foundation of, you know what? I'm going to here. Here's how we have difficult conversations. You know, here's a really difficult thing that I have to address with you pretty early on in a relationship you know he's an ethical guy he doesn't want to risk anybody else he doesn't want to spread you know he wants to make sure that it's in uh, it's informed consent with the people that he's having sex with mm-hmm. so he was governed by his eth- the fact that he's governed by these ethics puts him in a situation where he has to have that difficult conversation right at the top of the relationship right and it gives you some context of other people he's with too right right totally and they're involved in that conversation their willingness to participate and continue on in the relationship yeah. right right and so it is definitely um you know, it's a superpower, right? Once yeah. you get it out of the way, you your relationship is like, you know, unblocked and you have foundation for hard conversations. And yeah. um, so I thought that was really interesting. And he was funny. He was really funny. At some point he shared, because there was, you know, with all the speakers, they shared little like notes of wisdom and, and knowledge. And he said that, I think it's like, four out of 10 people or something have HPV. If mm. something like 40%, I remember that the, what was funny about it, the takeaway was he said, essentially as many people have, have an iPhone have HPV. HPV. And yet there's still, again, there's such shame around it and, yeah. and no one is talking about it, yeah. but it's, such, it's something that's really common. So there's a lot of people walking around either not knowing and not going through the process of getting tested and figuring out or not not acknowledging it or not sharing it or not talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And and all the shame that they carry, you know, carry mm-hmm. around with it. It's so limiting to everybody. Um, so that was super interesting. And, and it was nice to have that perspective. It was a real consider this moment, yeah. you know, just like consider this. It might actually not be a good thing, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I really, I mean, his, his talk was great. Um, and we're going to tell you at the end how you can actually listen to these things um, uh, yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we recorded them uh, and we'll be publishing them and we'll let you know how you can. And I really, I mean, every every talk, every panel was great. Yeah. Uh, we're just giving you like our takeaways. Um, there's so much more there, and you know, we're also giving you. Uh, summaries the talks themselves were just funny and entertaining and (laughs) engaging um so i really recommend you actually kind of you know spend some time sit down and watch them put them in the background and and listen to them yeah and then thomas joined us for the next event which was a panel on porn so again talk about stigmatizing talk about shame talk about you know things so it was uh, thomas uh joined us on the panel the panel moderator was led by aisha hussein she's uh, a sexuality activist a conscious entrepreneur she is the founder of the violet which does pop-up porn and cinema which the intention of that is to end rape culture and she's a co-creator of past the porn again a cinematic experience to help make porn a part of the social conversation and so this is deeply a part of her work and Mm -hmm. in our work with her this was something that she brought to us as, as something that we shouldn't be concluded and consider this. And it immediately struck us as interesting because everybody has an opinion about porn. Everybody. And so wherever your opinion lies on the topic, and we got to see some of that diversity and perspective on the stage. And Effie and I have had many conversations oh, before yes. and since, <laughs> and I'm sure on this podcast, we'll have many more conversations about porn and about the good, the bad and the ugly. For sure. Of yeah. it. And so uh, Aisha was joined by Max Capacity, who is the creative director of Aorta Films. Um, and Max, so they Max does experimental and kind of DIY performances within Aorta Films and really was 
amazing around giving context about indie versus kind of general consumption mm-hmm. porn. Uh, yeah, about talking about their experience both as a user and as a producer mm-hmm. of the porn, mm-hmm. talking about some of the good, bad, and the ugly within the industry. And so, you know, we'll give all the information for Iota Films in in our in the bio of, of this podcast sure that you can follow because mm-hmm. it's really fantastic work that they're doing. Um, then there was Alison Falk, who is the founder of Women Tech Pittsburgh and also the managing director of Women Tech Sex in Sex Tech. And Allison talked about deep fake. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into some of mm-hmm. our highlights, but really talked about some of the cybersecurity mm-hmm. risks that happen in porn, but also the impact of porn on the internet. Yes. Which I had no idea. For sure. Yeah. Allison's background is technology. Yeah. And they really brought that side of it. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, that's what I think that's what interesting. The panel was so balanced, you know, um, Allison brought the, the tech side of it and, um, how both the the negative and the and the, the the negative and the positive impacts of porn in technology, right, in right. the internet itself, right. So Max talked about it from a creation and user point of view. Uh, Allison talked about it from the point of view of the tech, mm. and then Thomas joined to talk about it from the point of view of research. Mm-hmm. Thomas has done research around pornography and around the impact of that on people's or the and the correlation that if it exists between depression, um, between uh, use of condoms Mm -hmm. things like that and so he explored some of the research that he's been doing in the space of porn on this panel and Aisha led this dialogue that at times was deeply personal she Mm -hmm. asked them about the type of porn that they watch and when they first experienced porn at what age and then also really talked about kind of some bigger social issues that we're trying to tackle as it relates to this topic yeah, and it's a big topic, you know. I mean, the porn, the the the, the panels were forty five minutes, um, and you can kind of keep going. Uh, <laughs> and especially with with a topic like porn, when like you said, everybody has an opinion, and it's interesting. It was probably one of the topics that we discussed the most as yes. we were gearing up to it in the office, and maybe even since, and even since, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Um, we still, you know, we listened back to the panel several mm-hmm. times, and we're, you know, every time we listen to it, we're like, oh yeah, this bit. You know, how about this perspective? How about this? It just seems endless. Mm -hmm. And so let me, to give some context first, and and Thomas mentioned this, and it was information for me was really helpful. He, based on the research, defined porn as a media that's produced to arouse, Mm -hmm. with the distinction being that many things may arouse, right? So if you have a shoe fetish, then a shoe commercial is going to turn you on. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the intention of that shoe commercial, that pornography is something that is created with the intention of turning someone on, of arousing Mm -hmm. them. And I just thought that that context was really helpful because as we dove into the topic, we started to, you start to figure, well, is that porn Mm -hmm. or is that indie? Is that DIY? Is Mm -hmm. that mainstream? is that gonzo is that like what are all sure, there's so many sure. terms that get thrown around yeah is it art house that it's yes. going to get an oscar right, you know? right, like exactly. where is that line yeah right. so that was really interesting and then allison gave some context around porn's impact online so for example that you know porn really funds online innovation mm-hmm. i had no idea for sure yeah i mean it's uh, i had a i had a bit of an idea about that it's kind of crazy a lot of um video technology um file uh, compression and how we transfer files now and um this that the speed of the internet and all that kind of stuff is being pushed along by the porn industry that's wild um the fast the, how fast the video has grown on the internet is all porn related 
good. Yeah. If you remember how it was like, we'd load up images for like forever. Yes. Right. And look at how we are, where we are now with not only video, but like video, but <laughs> pictures, photos, video, <laughs> gifts. Thomas talked about that at some point. He, about when he was younger and he would have like the AOL or like dial up <laughs> and it would like, st- and it would take an hour for a photo to like download. And then you realize the person's like in their underwear and you've wasted already an hour. And you're yeah. like, no. And so you're right about, about yeah. the speed of it. And yeah. that's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. That's all, that's all porn's doing. Um, same with, with um, uh, security, cybersecurity, same with um, uh, payment, paywalls, all that kind of stuff is rooted in porn. Who knew? And what was interesting, and in talking about the technology piece and talking about the innovation that exists there, one of the dangerous ways in which innovation is making its way into online pornography is this idea of deepfake, which mm-hmm. Allison talked about, which again, I had a sense of, but the severity around what is possible there mm-hmm. was new for me. And so essentially what she was describing was the fact that other people's faces can be embedded on different people's bodies. Mm-hmm. And so if you and I, for example, Effie in a relationship and I and we have a bad breakup and I decide to use your face and I have the technological technological means to do so to put your face on someone else's body. I can now distribute that out. I can make sure that it is tagged in such a way that when someone Googles you, this video will come out and no one will know that that is not you. Right. For everyone who's watching, they're going to think that Effie made porn and and it exists there. And that that, number one, is revenge porn, Mm -hmm. which is illegal in in many places and and is something that needs to be prosecuted more. And number two, has multiple victims. For sure. Certainly you for being, but also the the person who was actually in the film and the people who were part of that process. And and so that was really interesting. For sure, yeah. And it's... uh, um, I mean, it has multiple layers, right? The fact that revenge porn is a thing is mm-hmm. because porn itself, because sex is stigmatized, because yeah, porn is stigmatized so that you can leverage it to be to be revenge, yes. right? So that's, we're that's, seeing that's, that now in our political system, right? We're seeing people having to step down now because of photographs and other things. And yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that this, all this stuff is stigmatized is like that sort of layer run. On top of that, absolutely. Like technology is now there. It used to be that you needed to like record the stuff with your partner who then breaks up for you right. who then then will distribute that footage now you don't even even if you don't do any of that right. if they have some videos on their phone of you just like doing anything right. they can use that to teach ai put your face onto a some existing video and um that's it you're out there and and an average person is not going to be able to tell the difference um and that's 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 scary. Yeah. That's scary. And like you said, the exploitation. It's like exploitation of the person, but then the body who's being who's being used as yeah. as your like body double or whatever. Yeah. Um, we don't think about that. Yeah. We don't think about that. Um she also talked about um you know the, the 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 murky waters of child pornography. Yes. Right? It might like putting children's faces onto right. you know young looking bodies and like is that child porn is that you know is that um pedophilia it gets very murky very very quickly and our legal systems and our all of our systems around that have not caught up to the technology sure. we continue to find this and later on we'll talk about this as it relates to censorship but the systems that we have in place in order to regulate and have conversations and have laws are not in line with and not catching up to the technological aspects of what we're saying absolutely absolutely i mean we know the the laws are so misaligned in, in these topics anyway mm-hmm. and one of the topics that we talked about is the, the law that the bill that passes the foster sister mm-hmm. um and 
it was really good that we had the opportunity to bring everybody up to speed of what what foster sesta is um do you want to do, oh we'll, we'll cover yes, that we'll, yeah, go, yeah, we'll, we'll go cover that censorship. Um, this is the censorship model yeah um, so yeah. let me tell you two things that i think stood out for me as, as so first it was thomas giving us some context in terms of the research it was certainly allison telling us some of the things that we should be seeing and keeping an eye on in terms of technology and then max would ha- was having conversation around the part of the what's beautiful as she said or, or what they said around the industry in the indie porn industry was representation and so they talked about the power of seeing yourself your gender identity your body shape your skin color represented on screen mm-hmm. now that there's more of that with indie porn that's mm-hmm. happening as opposed to what was being put out there in terms of mainstream mm-hmm. And that was something that I hadn't considered before. No, no. I, I, to be honest, I hadn't even considered these distinct um, genres of porn. I think when when you think of genres of porn, you think of like what you like to see in the porn. Mm. Um, I think it was interesting to have um, at least some insight to mainstream porn versus indie porn, where they described it as, um, you know. Uh, uh, essentially social commentary you know artistic social commentary yeah so that so one distinction being kind of the mass produced but indie and ethical porn being uh, i think it's twofold how what's the business behind it so is it consensual are people treated right are they paid fairly and then the content that's being shown how does it relate to our current state of affairs is it relevant etc right right exactly and you know and what i loved about it is that they weren't um they didn't have a value judgment of one is better than the other one they mm-hmm. weren't like indie porn is always ethical and and mainstream porn is always bad. Um, I think the the distinction they were making is both of those genres can be ethical or poorly mm-hmm. handled, mm-hmm. and so just be aware of what you're consuming. Mm-hmm. You know, there was yes. def- there was a definitely continuous um, reminder that you should pay for your porn, right? Yes. Um, which will then pay for the performers and the crew and everybody else who's actually making the porn. So pay for your porn was a message that we got over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and just be mindful of the porn that you're consuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember being a young person at that point, I wasn't, I wasn't watching pornography, but I was, maybe it was like Cinemax or HBO mm-hmm. at night or something and seeing bodies that didn't look like mine, seeing, you know, colors of the skin or shapes of things that mm-hmm. didn't look like mm-hmm. mine and feeling like I was different. Mm-hmm. And so there was something that resonated I think when Max talked about being able to see some version of yourself Mm -hmm. again your weight your color your body type your presentation on screen and see that person be sexual and think okay that's like me now what was interesting is you and I debriefed about it and you had a very different takeaway Mm -hmm. than I did from that yeah I guess I am curious right and I am considering honestly my um the jury is out for me about porn um, I totally see why um, it is an artistic medium and how it can be um, inspiration and the, the sort of the, the positive sides that, 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 you know, this panel talked about. And I see that. Um, I also am finding that I can't be ignorant to the damage that mm-hmm. um, that it can cause. Right. And the, this particular thing that you talk about representation, I can't help but wonder if what may look like representation in, in one way, can it be also exploitation or fetishization of you know a specific look or a Mm -hmm. specific person or a specific identity right so um one of the things that we talked about is you know seeing um you know disability you know uh 
on the screen as a part of porn, right? It, my question is, is it really being celebrated or mm. is it being fetishized? Mm. And, uh, you know, and I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't mm -hmm. know the answers. Right? And I think my, my guess is that both of those exist, that, that this porn exists that really celebrates diversity um, and celebrates representation, you know, cares about representation through celebration. Mm -hmm. um, I also am sure there's porn out that, that, um, exploits this diversity and exploits these um, identities. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just murky. It's just murky. It's, there's no clear, clear uh, lines for me. I agree. I think that's fair in that, to your point, is it representation? Is it objectification? Because one of the things that you had talked about as we continue to debrief mm. this panel is that when you are even searching for something, you're searching generally under, I want to see a Latina woman. Mm. I want to see an Asian woman. I want to see a black man. I mm. want to see that the character of who we are as a part of what we're searching for. Mm. And so at that point, again, is it about representation or is it, are you objectifying different bodies, different uh, perceptions around how different people show up based on their culture? Um, and so it, it, it does feel murky. Yeah, yeah, it gets murky. And, you know, um, the, the the porn that Aisha shows that is a part of past the porn um, and the, the porn that Max um, Capacity make, um, this is, you know... Uh, very thought through, um, artistic, uh, ethical, you know, what, you know, what I would call like haute couture of, mm -hmm. uh, of porn. Right. And when you do watch, and I've seen, I've been to Aisha's events. Um, when you do watch that porn, it is a, it is an experience, it's an artistic experience. It's a, you know, um, they even talked about going to porn festivals, which I've been to a couple of times also. It is a different experience than the porn that you put on your, you know, phone screen or, or, or your computer screen to get off on. Mm. And I think they, we, you know, the panel touched on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that there is a distinction there. There's a difference between the different these different types of porn. And I think n the more I think about it, the now the more the information that I have, I'm realizing like porn is such a broad um, segment or genre of mm -hmm. film or art or whatever you want to call it. It's really hard to nail it down to like this one thing and therefore it's good or it's this one thing and therefore right. it's bad. Right. When you say porn, I think before this panel, before we did the research for it and listened to it and since then we've been talking about it, I just had one idea of what porn is. I kind of like, mm -hmm. it was a reductive idea of this people fucking on film. Mm -hmm. It's kind of what I had in mm -hmm. mind. And now that I've thought about it more, I'm realizing it's just not that easy. Yeah. And I think, again, layered on top of that, what was, what was fascinating for me was that it was complicated even for the people who are experts in this field mm. who are on stage because the folks who are producing, creating, and showing the more outhouse, art house indie porn said at the end of the day, when they go home at night, they go into Pornhub and to get the thing done. And that was fascinating. Right. And, and we joked about you, you referenced, which I thought was hilarious, the fact that, you know, like a like a Paris Fashion Week designer then wearing H&M on, on like the weekends. Like <laughs> you're really, on the one hand, you're creating something that's beautiful, but is that the same thing that you were using and doing in your everyday life? Yeah, it's the, these are the nuances of it all. Yeah. And I think... Uh, with that, there's, you know, the consumption of porn, you know, let's go back to this fashion example, right? We know that H&M is bad for the environment. We know mm -hmm. that it is not environmentally um, sustainable, uh, yet we consume it knowing it's it's bad. Um, and I feel like this this is same with porn. Like there is porn that is beautiful, couture, handmade, sustainably, you know, sustainable, mm -hmm. um, fair, you know, fair trade, mm -hmm. beautiful gowns that I would love to wear every day. Mm -hmm. But that's just not, that's just not what we consume we still go and consume h&m mm -hmm. um and to say that h&m is the same as 
you know, an Alexander McQueen gown mm. and to treat it the same and then have a sort of um, a decision on whether it's good, bad, mm. you know, um, healthy, unhealthy. I, I'm not convinced. Like there's a lot of dissonance there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to think, I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. Yeah. I feel like porn will never be the same for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is it now. I'm not, every time I watch porn, I'm like, I'm supposed to be getting up. No, let me think about the... Were the performers paid well? Right. Yeah, Were, right. Does it feel like a safe consensual vibe? It's true. It's true. Well, you know, again, but this is what I love about this stuff, and I think the things that we create for consider this and 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 just curious Fox in general is that what we have to say in these spaces are never the final word. Right. They are just opportunities to spark curiosity and dialogue, yeah. and that it did for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, as I said, like it's, it's opened a whole new. You know, I now have a whole new file in my brain for like, <laughs> okay, let's think about porn. You know, yeah. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be thinking about that a little more, yeah. and. um and I think this discussion will go on. Yeah, yeah. And so once our heads were filled with porn, <laughs> we had to figure out, we sent everyone to lunch. <laughs> like, get out of here. Go get something to eat. Right? Clean yourself off. Clean your mind <laughs> off so we can come back to the business of, of, of some of this, the work that we were doing. And then when everyone came back, we had Hilla the Killer. Oh, my God. She <laughs> was, we should say they. Yes. yes. It's Hilla and um uh nate yes Hilla and nate yes. um and they were hilarious so entertaining so f- funny and thoughtful and smart yeah and i i honestly truly did not know hilla beforehand so hilla perry of hilla the killer um d- combines hip-hop and comedy and energy and lyricism and freestyling and costumes <laughs> and you know effie introduced me to the, and and i and i saw the bio certainly and put it out there but i was a little skeptical i'm like what what is this <laughs> that we're gonna and they were amazing yeah amazing yeah, yeah. They, uh hiller performed three songs um one about small penises mm-hmm. and how again this theme of like should not be stigmatized mm-hmm. it goes across the yes, day how they should not be stigmatized certainly have a place about body hair uh-huh. which i loved and her embracing her body hair and not trying to shave everything unless she wanted to mm-hmm. and then this idea of making love like a fish that was hilarious <laughs> so good and, and you know we can talk about this um but again it's something that you have, you have this one you definitely it. have to see for yourself absolutely um it's hilarious and i think my other than just the brilliance of the performance um one thing that i do take away from the the performance itself is that it, it was um so hila the killer hila does her her own content as hila the killer and then um she and her partner nate have a collaborative mm-hmm. um uh relationship and they do this thing as a hila and nate and we had them both on stage, and it was just nice to see a yeah. couple with with a little creative collaboration. Yeah, um, I talk a lot about how relationships are, um, you know, creative collaborations, and they are co creations, and they require creativity, and you know thinking things through together and this was them doing it literally on a creative project and yeah. it was really cool to see that yeah it was fun it was a lot of fun um and then we had this little known person <laughs> named effie blue go up on stage and and truly and i i will say this you know I've, sh- I've shared this with effie i'll share this now with the world like blew people's minds away i think as it relates to understanding how the patterns that were created and embedded with us as children we take form again i'm trying to even think of the language how they essentially are become a part of the way we interact as adults in our relationships and the way that you described it around these echoes of the past that we believe were in our childhood but really exist in the present and exist in the way that we interact with our partners 
afterwards, people kept going up to Effie and saying like, oh my God, that was me. You're talking about my story. And the way that you did it was beautiful in, in engaging story and the research. And so I thought you did a fantastic job. And I think you should summarize it so people have a sense of what it was you spoke about. For sure. Um, it was important to me because this is something that come I come up against again and again in my practice. And often when I talk to people, it really, um, those who haven't done the work and who haven't had the, you know, the, the, uh, the fortune to come across this stuff. Um, the thing that they run up against um, is that the way that we handle our relationships today are often echoes off that initial, the first relationship of our lives, which is our relationship with our parents. Um, and I think if you, you know, if you speak, if you listen to the talk, um, I do sort of explain, give you some examples of what that looks like. Uh, just the way that I think about it is that that initial relationship with our parents, our primary caregivers, it doesn't necessarily have to be our birth parents, mm -hmm. right? It's the people who have taken care of us in those really first, very, very vulnerable first years of our lives. It's like up to four, where we are essentially blobs and the human infant is is very um, unsophisticated when, when it's born. Um, unlike um, a dog or a horse that can walk um, find its way to water and food really quite quickly. Um, can get cues from um, uh, um, you know cues from a parent really quickly. Um, and, and and the human infant is essentially a blob and 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 knows it that we we know that we need to survive and we know that we are one hundred percent vulnerable and that we mm -hmm. cannot survive unless we attach ourselves to a caregiver. Um, so in those first four years, we are absolutely. Um, uh, dependent um, we we create that first most crucial relationships of our lives that is intrinsically we've uh, woven into our survival mm -hmm. um, I think of it as like the fresh snow you know like that's the fresh snow um, that is our relationship and as the relationship is enacted so the way that you know our parents um, handle us, uh, the way they change our diapers, the way they treat us when we cry, the way they, um, you know, the way they tolerate risk around us. Like, were we allowed to run around free in the house? Was somebody hovering over us the whole time? Mm -hmm. Were they, um, you know, were they available when we wanted to tell them about our, you know, make-believe, you know, thing that we make up, we made up, or were they? unavailable and just were, you know, engrossed in something else. You know, these are the mild kinds, right? Or you go to the other extreme end when, you know, was there a sick parent and, and the other parent was focused on taking care of that parent or a, or a grandparent and they weren't available. Did they have mental health issues and they weren't available? Or um, there, there are many, many reasons the, the way that the relationship is then enacted. And, and think about that is then these fresh tracks that are being laid onto fresh snow. And then once the, the tracks are laid, you kind of keep going down the same tracks, going down the same tracks, right? So if you look at like a, a ski slope, you see the tracks, right? Because everyone's kind of following the same tracks. And then you then go out into the world and those are the tracks that you know and those are the tracks you recognize. So when you see love out in the world, when you see um, what looks like that initial relationship, you recognize it and you go, oh, I know this, I know this, I know that this is love, I know that this is a relationship because that's the prototype that I've been given. Um, and then depending on the quality and the health of those relationships, then you go on to repeat them, right? Mm -hmm. And if they happen to be if you happen to have healthy, resilient, dynamic, um, uh, that first prototype, then you go on there and you go, you go off into the world and you, you know, have similar, healthy, dynamic, um, resilient relationships. If for some reason that's not the case, mm -hmm. then this, the, the, the malfunctioning or the, I should say the, 
The unhealthy version is what you recognize and that's what you reenact over and over mm. again. Um, and for me, that's what's really important is just to know that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that you, um, that once you know that, you can like pause and take stock. You can look at your current relationship. You can look at your past relationships. If you can see patterns, that's super important. And if you find yourself that you're just doing the same thing over and over again, that you, the chances are you are operating from an old um, you know, your your the tracks that you know, or an echo of what you already experienced in your in in your home in those first few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's not working for you, this is an opportunity for you to change. I think that's what felt the most empowering about what you shared. And I I think I was first introduced to attachment theory a year ago when you were my relationship coach, <laughs> and, and and I learned it as a part of my dynamic within my relationship. And then became obsessed and like read everything that Mm -hmm. had to do with it. And I did find that to be really empowering to understand that these were patterns that were created Mm -hmm. and that we are reenacting these things. And so if you've ever been in a relationship and you felt like you show up very clingy and overly emotional, overly attached, smothering, or at least that's the feedback that you're getting from your partner, Mm -hmm. or you show up as the opposite, you show up as incredibly aloof and distant and disengaged and noncommittal, that those are things that it sounds like the tracks of which were laid when you were a child and with consciousness and thought and work, you can work around those things Mm -hmm. and show up as healthy and show up as engaged and balanced as opposed to showing up as either trying to hold on too tight or trying to push away. And so it it sounded like afterwards as people were, we were hearing the feedback from folks that that that's what resonated so much was number one, identifying the patterns from the stories that you shared and saying, oh, that was my mom. That was my dad. That's that's why I'm like this now Mm -hmm. and thinking, oh, well, there's something I can do about it. Yes, I, I think uh, I really haven't met anybody who um, haven't responded, didn't have a re- reaction to once explained or once suggested that it might, you might, they might be coming, coming, they might be um, enacting an old pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they kind of see it, um, you really see people's, you see it in people's eyes. Like you see paradigm, little paradigm shift yeah. in their eyes and this like new piece of knowledge opens and their lives just shifts and they yeah. have a new perspective on their parents. They have a new perspective on their current relationships. They have a new perspective on their own, the way that they show up in relationships. So I think it's, it's really, really important. And I personally, I want to make it more of the thing that I talk about publicly. Uh, I focus on, you know, non-monogamy and that's my, you know, that, that is my expert, um, uh, topic. Um, and I want to keep talking about that. And I want to, I want to have those conversations with more with attachment informed. Yeah. Uh, with- and, and as somebody certainly as an individual, as a person in a relationship and as a parent, that's been incredibly inf- important information for me. If you are a parent, you should read about attachment theory. Absolutely. If you want to become a parent, if you are a significant adult in, in a child's life, understanding how these tracks are formed from the ages of zero to four and, and what we can do to make sure that a young person is, is receiving healthy attachment styles and, and healthy relationship bonds is very important. And then understanding once that ha- I mean, I think I learned about this when my daughter was six or seven and reflecting back like, oh, no, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> tracks are laid. But now I, I have time to, to readjust some things. And as I continue to grow, certainly I grow as a parent as well. And so I just think that the generational impact and the breaking of the chains of patterns that can be learned from understanding things like this mm-hmm. has deep impact. For sure. For sure. And and I think that the really important thing to, that you said that I really want to like 
echo is the generational. Yeah. It gets passed down. Yeah. The person who's you know not available for their child is showing up that way, not because they're malicious or they don't care. It's because they are reacting to something in their past. Mm -hmm. So you can really quite you know if you if you know I've done work with people who have actually you know get to know multi generational. I happen to I happen to know my great granddad um so i got to know and i was you know i have a big family uh people like telling stories so i have you know i have insight into how my granddad showed up for my mom who then who my, and how my mom showed up for me and you know and then all the other way around on my dad's side so you can see that these patterns are getting um just coming down the line coming down the line coming down the line and it's just worth becoming aware of those things mm -hmm. for yourself and definitely if you're going to have a child yeah absolutely right absolutely right and so I think it was like a blown away moment for everybody. It, you could feel there were there were definitely moments within the event. And we'll talk about the ending of, of our event, which I think was a part of that, where you could just feel the shifts in the room and feel, I think, the way that we laid it out again in the spirit of just bragging and for <laughs> us on behalf of us. I do think that we laid it out well, that there were you know, opportunities for people to laugh and to mm -hmm. be thoughtful. And I think this was a, a real moment where people were sitting in this and, mm -hmm. and really th being reflective about their relationships. And um, so it was exciting to be in the audience for that. Yeah, no. No, thank you. Thank you, you for the support. Yeah, yeah, it's always for me, it's always a little nerve wracking to be on stage. You know, I'm sure it's the same for everyone. Um, I really am. I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I have a little platform and a little state, yeah. little stage to talk about this stuff because I genuinely believe it's really, really important. Yeah. And then following you, I got to go up on stage yes, with a bunch of it. some badass ladies. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Your panel was so heavy. I mean, all the panels were amazing. Yeah. Um, your panel was really heavyweight. Yeah, it was good. But so I did, I moderated a panel on censorship and we discussed the impact of censorship on advertising, on the internet and media, and essentially asked the question, what should be censored and who gets to decide? And this was an important topic for me because a lot of my work within Curious Fox and within Crafting Your Path, the organization that, that I found and, and run outside of Curious Fox, a lot of that is around external expectations and internal fear and doubt. And a lot of external expectations that we receive around how we should show up in the world is rooted in what we are allowed to consume. And so there are people who are making decisions around what we are allowed to see and hear and read and what we are allowed to consume creates a narrative, which then we ingest. Mm -hmm. And then that helps us figure out as we grow, oh, I should be this, I should be that. And so when you see women being over-sexualized in advertisements, that sends a message to girls that that is the way that I'm supposed to show up in the world. When we are allowed to read certain books or see certain things or not, that again gives us information around what we should feel ashamed of, what is bad, what is good and those types of things again reinforce for us who we should be in the world and so i was interested in exploring the role of censorship as it relates to these three different mediums and so we had an incredible panel of thoughtful smart amazing women who spoke about censorship in these three different worlds we had alexandra fine who is the co-founder of dame products who she has her master's degree in clinical psychology and is a sex therapist from Columbia and decided that she was going to leverage her passion around the topic to create and her expertise in sex tech to create these incredible products. And so Dame that creates sex toys um, started with, they did, what was it? They did Indiegogo. A yes. And they did a, a crowdsourcing. Yes. Crowdsourcing on Indiegogo and they weren't allowed to be on Kickstarter. Because yes. it's a six right, and we'll, we'll talk more about mm -hmm. that. But they got like 
some crazy amount yeah. of money for their first product, which really talked again about the need. And she's just super smart. Mm-hmm. And she, it's funny, she talks about herself as a capitalist turned activist Activism. as a result of some of this work, but really came to it from a business point of view and realized that women and pleasure and sexuality and education for women was something that was really important in a field that she wanted to be in. So she talked to us about advertising. And then we had SX Noir, who identifies themselves as a Midwestern brat hacking the conversation on sex, love, and dating in the digital space um, and a thought leader, T-H-O-T leader, thought leader, <laughs> thought leader in sex tech. Um, really, again, someone who is incredibly smart and engaged in the work and knowledgeable not only around the law, and we'll talk about this as it relates to censorship in the internet, but understands it from an experiential point of view. Mm-hmm. So understands the research of it, understands the impact of it, is engaged in the community, and so spoke on all those behalfs. And then lastly, to talk about... Uh, Uh, censorship in the media we had uh christina hutchinson who is the co-host of guys we fucked which is a widely popular podcast uh the anti 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 slut shaming podcast um she's a comedian she's been featured on comedy central and uh she has a solo show the voices in our head really funny Mm -hmm. again really smart somebody who has been really thoughtful about the role of censorship in in her work. She mm-hmm. has a large platform, both on social media and certainly through the podcast, mm-hmm. and has been thoughtful about how to engage that platform and leverage it to support people and to bring conversations to the table that other people don't want to have. Absolutely. And had to fight this fight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so so we we went into it with each. And and so Alex from, from Dame talked a, about how Dame products were not allowed to be... First of all, they can't have ads on Facebook. Mm-hmm. They we are in New York City and they cannot have advertisements in our train system Mm -hmm. in the MTA. And as a part of the panel, I on the, in the background was showing photos Mm -hmm. of advertisements that are allowed to be put up in all these different places of scantily clad ladies Mm -hmm. of there's a Dolce and Cabana ad where a woman is being held down by a group of men and they're all wearing like couture you know Mm -hmm. Dolce and Cabana Mm -hmm. outfits there is uh, one uh, an American apparel of a guy just holding open this woman's legs there's a a liquor ad of a woman sitting on the couch with bruised knees Mm -hmm. alluding to you know what will happen if you get her drunk enough I assume Mm -hmm. right 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 And, and then juxtaposed to these dame ads which is like this millennial pink background (laughs) with these kind of tiny soft what they look like children's toys essentially that happen to be vibrators and other toys for women and um, uh, space spider one of them just looks like a space spider (laughs) they do they look like little like kind of yes just little and that we weren't they're not allowed to to advertise it they're not allowed to put up those ads and so we began the conversation with that around why is it that women and sex have been used to sell but we cannot sell things about sex for women. Right, absolutely. I think it's so potent. And um, I have, I'm, we'll, we'll pro- we're going to put the images that Jackie shared on our blog, um, wearecuriousfoxes.com, which is, a, the website is developing. We're going to just kick things off with the blog. Um, I, I thought it was, just to see the, you know, the, the descriptions that you've just heard are are great and but just to see it in front of mm-hmm. you and see these ads one after another after another um they are you know they're not suggestive they are they are overt, oh, overt you know <laughs> yes. it's not some, some coy suggestion like very overt sexual mm-hmm. um you know often from a you know sexualizing um the female body um and then you see um you see the dame ads um right 
And there's nothing sexy or phallic or suggestive about them. Um, and they're kind of, they kind of tell you what they are. It's the, it, I think the, the strap line is um, toys for sex. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like, this is what it is. This, this is, is where is. you buy it. It's pretty yeah. direct. There's nothing. No, it's completely true. And and again, you know, we talked about that old adage in the marketing world of sex sells. And yet, just, despite how pervasive sex is in marketing, that the rules of advertising just aren't equitable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they, and, and we talked also about how, not only that it's, you know, then the amount of extra effort, extra money, extra time that goes into their marketing team mm-hmm. to have these workarounds, mm-hmm. to figure out ways that they can fit into these like narrow yet vague mm-hmm. um, classifications, what they can say and they can't say in advertising. And it's, frankly, it's offensive when you see it next to a, a Heineken ad with a, you know, a, a bikini clad, you know, yes. woman like hugging the 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 Mm -hmm. bottle or whatever it's offensive to see that and so here in new york with with the mta part of what dame is fighting and the conversations they're having around censorship is that there are there's a brand called hymns that sells uh, erectile dysfunction Uh, it's products for men oh so it's products for men and within that got it and well so because one of the ads that they have up or several of the ads that they have up in the train station are cactuses or cacti that are Again, not only in the shape of a, a penis, and it's not really phallic. Like it's it it's literally just a penis disguised as as a cactus. Right. It's phallic as you can ever get. <laughs> There's no beating around the bush. And so that is not a, that is approved mm-hmm. and is hanging uh, in train stations all over New York. Right. Um, and Dames is not. And, and and when they inquired about this, what they what they heard back was that men need to have erections. It's a medical issue, and that women do not need to feel pleasure when they're having sex. And so um, pleasurable sex is not necessary and erections are Mm -hmm. and so we had a little bit of a conversation about this because i think it's nuanced sure 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 i have a personal uh you know i have a take on it because i don't necessarily disagree we talked about this earlier i don't necessarily disagree that we need erections right and and that I, i on a big macro species level i do agree that we need erections to continue the species and we don't necessarily need orgasms for species for the for for on a species level right mm-hmm. so i'll buy it at that level if they if they explain to me at that level i'll buy it however the advertising for erectile dysfunction um or you know these drugs are not for um couples who are struggling to conceive right, right? which means it's a medical issue that is about <laughs> a need for for uh, erection right. but they are actually um, marketing it to like older men right. who can't get it up anymore or like <laughs> exactly. for fun reasons right you know? exactly exactly it's like empty nesters now who are you know reinvested in their relationship right and exactly yeah. exactly so so yes it is a medical condition but the prescription for it or right. the marketing for it is for pleasure right so now it puts these these um ads in the same bucket as they ads. right Right. Exactly right. And so, so again, that was part of that's where we started the conversation was since the 1800s that that women have been used to sell sex. And yet we when it's time now to sell sex pleasure toys to women, that's being censored. And so that started off the dialogue and we continued down kind of our love and obsession of sex. And and I read off some some interesting statistics and we talked about Pornhub earlier. So in Pornhub in 2008 in their annual report revealed that there were over 30 billion searches that year. Each minute translated to 64,000 new visitors, 207,000 videos and 58,000 searches per minute. That's crazy. 
Perfect. That is crazy. That's why that's why it's the backbone of the internet. <laughs> yes, that makes sense. Exactly. <laughs> what else is being searched that much? And so even though our search histories are filled with sexy URLs, it's becoming more and more difficult to navigate through the internet as a sex educator or sex we- worker. Sure. And so we started to explore SESTA Foster, which Effie referenced earlier, which was a law that was put into place. And I should note uh, a bipartisan law Mm -hmm. that was heavily backed on all sides. Everyone thought it was a great idea and really is rooted in or is to explain to be rooted in ending sex trafficking. Right. And by the way, it passed in a heartbeat. Yes. It was considered for a second and before people can even like whoa 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 let us explain to you what it's gonna do it was passed because everybody wants to end sex trafficking right i mean that that's clear so let's let's put that out there that we all want to end sex right it was it was um child uh, pornography Mm -hmm. and um sex trafficking is what this bill was supposed to be fighting exactly right now because as all things as it relates to sex or the internet are there's so much ambiguity mm-hmm. in what that means how things are stopped prevented censored whose responsibility that is that it became it spun out to something that has become incredibly not only murky but also dangerous mm-hmm. Absolutely. and what as a part of this it put the onus on the platforms to self-censor what the content was so for example it became now Facebook's responsibility or Instagram's responsibility or Yahoo's responsibility to censor what were the mediums and what was the content that was going to be put out. And because certainly there is not the capacity to read through every single post and photo to determine whether or not that is actually sex education, that is sex work, that is sex trafficking, that is child performance, anything that looked like sex, Mm -hmm. anything in some cases that had the word sex was being censored. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so part of the challenge of that, of course, is that there are there are sex workers in this world who have chosen to run their business online because that is a safer space to do that. There's more control. They don't need to now worry about being out on the street. They don't need to worry about working with somebody else who's going to uh, manage them. And exploit them. Exactly right. Them, yeah. And And by taking away this opportunity for them to have market into dialogue with folks in this way that certainly impacted their safety that impacted the work that they were doing um this is same true for for sex educators we have been censored there the emails that we send out go into spam there there are posts that go out there was a conversation sx noir talked about shadow banning Mm -hmm. which essentially means that you can post something and you think it's fine you don't get any messages saying that it's not being posted but on the other side, it is actually not posting it. Right. And so you realize you're not getting likes, you're not getting follows, nothing is happening with this content and this is doesn't make sense to you. And what you later on realize is that they have censored it from being seen by anyone, but have not told you yeah. that it is being censored. Yeah. It's crazy, it's crazy. It's it's. We were having this conversation where I posted something that um, was for uh, Midori, uh, one of our, you know, an amazing sex educator, um, pe- someone that we have featured as an educator, as a speaker. And she was doing an exhibition, um, a- an art exhibition at a museum, and it was about sex workers. Um, it was about an, om- an, an homage to sex work and sex workers. And she, you know, I posted, um, I passed it on, I posted on my, on my, and this is not even our page, on our profile, not a single like. It's impossible. I have thousands of friends. People like the, the most ridiculous things that I post. You know, at yes. least one person is like, oh, yeah, it's funny. 
not a single like that's not that's not that's not real that's right. that is what they're talking about that's shadow ban it's like it looks like i've posted it's like right. happily sitting on my feed but it's been suppressed in anybody else's feed right and then you get a hangover from that too then then mm -hmm. your next few feeds are all your next few posts are also kind of suppressed mm -hmm. a little bit exactly right. um and when you're when this is what you do all the time mm -hmm. it has a direct impact yes and so uh, honestly, regardless of how you feel about sex work, regardless of how you feel about what, you know, should be saying on the internet, I think that one of the things that, that we talked about and is important for us, particularly if you're listening to this podcast, Effie and I are deeply engaged in being able to have conversation mm -hmm. and believe in the power that dialogue and conversation and education has in freeing people both in their mind and in their lived experience. And the fact that we live in a world where sex can be found in our movies, in our television shows, in our music, our literature, our art, our advertising, our internet services. Churches, but not in our education system and not around our dinner table conversations and not in with with real sex education and that things like Sesta Foster, which then unintentionally or perhaps intentionally, based on who you're talking to, has now led to censorship on, in many, many forms of being able to have conversations around sex as it relates to education is, is incredibly damaging. For sure. And sex as it relates to um, pleasure too. Yes. Um, so sure, Absolutely I can right. I can buy some of that um, censorship towards, you know, I can definitely um, get behind censoring child pornography. I can definitely get behind, um, you know, uh, things that are obvi obviously, you know, traf you know sex trafficking. Um, but that's just not how these, how, that's not how it, it plays out you know you facebook doesn't really care about nuance and they they just can't mm -hmm. um handle the, the amount of posts so they just block it they just block it entirely so you know a dame ad or a dame post or a post about art um can't be censored in the same way that you maybe censor solicitation i'm not saying so I'm not saying censor solicitation as well. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm just saying you just can't put those things in the same bucket. Right. You know? Yes. Um, and right now everything is going in that bucket. We're saying sex is forbidden. Right. And and that and that's why I started this conversation by giving us the, the porn hub statistics. Because there is this dual reality of sex is bad and needs to be censored. But also <laughs> 30 billion searches within a year every every minute 58,000 searches there was when I was doing research around the preparation for this topic I read about this court case that happened about 15 years ago in, in Utah and it was talking about what is obscene and what's not obscene and, and I can go over some of that those rules and how interesting that is in this conversation as well but in that dialogue there was somebody who owned a video store and they were selling porn in the back of the video store as many video stores did when video stores existed and this particular town in Utah really Really praised themselves as being very conservative and very religious and shut them down and wanted to, to end the business. And the lawyers were able to argue to keep that man out of jail because he was going to be arrested for selling things that were obscene by doing research for the local hotel and found that the local hotel had a disproportionate large amount of pay-per-view viewings than any other state in the country. So this particular county in Utah was saying, we are incredibly conservative and we will not let that smut happen in our neighborhoods. But in the local hotels, there were more people watching pay-per-view porn in that community than in most other communities across the city and across the country. Yeah. And so that, I think, it was a beautiful illustration of wherein lies the conflict, where we are having conversation around how wrong sex is, how wrong sex work is, and sex dialogue, and sex pleasure, and sex education, at the same time, if you check anyone's 
URL histories, for sure. there's sex everywhere. Of course, of course. And so, you know, I think that we, we I, I'm amused as I'm listening to it, but it's also heartbreaking and really hard. And Essex Noir is, is a real advocate for the sex work community and talked about the, the personal damage that that's mm-hmm. doing to people in terms of their safety and their livelihoods and how it's a class issue in, in many cases. Absolutely. And so, you know, I thought that, that they did a beautiful job of, of explaining that to us and to the audience. These were things that I, I didn't know mm-hmm. and, and, and really now feel appreciative to, to, to be able to understand better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, it was, a, it was a heavyweight panel and this is a huge topic. We've definitely picked the topics this year. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, again, you, I really encourage you to listen to the full, the full panel and get into the nuance of it we I mean we barely scratched the surface uh, there are definitely you know areas that I encourage you to look at to really understand um, Jackie uh, did a really good sort of little bit of research at the beginning that put context and definitions uh, which we'll post in our blog as well uh, and I I guess our our call to action for you the thing that we really would like you to consider is to be mindful about to 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 notice where where thing where you might be getting censored where you might be on the other side of censorship you know mm-hmm. the thing is that are controlled for you yes you know think about what you're not seeing yes yes which is really hard which is something that came up yes you know, you just, or, or hearing as well i mean we didn't mention christina from from guys sure. we fucked who, yeah. who does that podcast talked about the fact that they were not able to have their podcast on itunes and when asked about it you know apple gave them some reason as to why that couldn't happen and so they engaged their audience they engaged their community and they started tweeting at uh, mm-hmm. apple and all this and then finally they caved and they're like no of course that was just a you know administrative error of course you can join as part of the and how they've been censored on Facebook and other platforms as well mm-hmm. and they're trying to have important dialogues about things like they talked about having dialogues around pedophilia they talked about having dialogues around sexual trauma and talking about and so again they're trying to have these dialogues and even though they have kind of a, a catchy name and that's why they're being censored in many spaces they're trying to have some deep conversation mm-hmm. around things that will remove shame and allow people to live more true to who they are and explore topics that they're free to, to explore in other places and and there are two who are being censored so yeah yeah you know what might be a fun exercise every now and then check your spam folder mm. to see what's in there mm-hmm. i mean i definitely i go in there we're gonna be in there curious we're fox there. emails yeah, are in there of course <laughs> curious i find curious fox emails in there i find babeland um emails in there i find legitimate businesses mm-hmm. sending legitimate emails in my spam folder and i take an i, t- I take a little bit of time when i do and whitelist them because mm-hmm. i think it's important mm-hmm. i think it's important so i mean little bit of thing you can a little bit of thing you can do is just like spend a few minutes on your spam folder and mm-hmm. whitelist whitelist some brands that you want to hear from you know yeah. go and go and subscribe to dame come and you know subscribe to curious fox and subscribe to all these awesome people and 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 you know tune into guys we fucked and and sign up to our newsletter and make sure they don't end up in your spam folder it's true and in the same way that we talked about with the porn panel the same is true with censorship there's no clear right Mm -hmm. or wrong to this we had conversations around you know what do we need to protect children from seeing what do we need to be protected from seeing ourselves and as it relates to sex and violence we you know we've had this conversation that Mm -hmm. sex is censored but you can see a preview for a movie that's incredibly violent on your feed without accepting it without consenting for sure and so there is there's no right or wrong answer it really is about being informed and it's about just having the consciousness and being woke to the idea that you are that someone is making decisions around what you have access to mm-hmm. and as a result of that you are you are unintentionally a part of a narrative that is 
creating an internal narrative for you around what is possible and how you need mm-hmm. to show up in the world and what you should feel shame around and just be thoughtful about it. Yeah, change the noise, my friend. Change, change the, the noise. noise. Hashtag change the noise. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, that was a, an intense um, and super interesting um, topic. And uh, we took a bit of a break from it. I think we needed a break. We needed a break from it. Everyone was so riled up. <laughs> Everybody was like, what? We want to see it all. <laughs> um, it was definitely the panel had attention, you know, at the end. And mm-hmm. it, it really like people were riled yeah, up. We at might the have to do a round two. Yeah, I'm interested. Do you know what might be actually good is for us to revisit each speaker yeah. and each topic just on an episode yes. and just, just dedicate a whole episode to it because there's just so much there and where this is our like digest yes. and we already you know so far yes. in and people are like patiently listening and out there in the world if you are an expert in any of these fields of any of the things mm-hmm. that we're talking about we would love to engage yeah. you in the conversation absolutely Effie and i are coming at this as as two really curious people who are also in the process of learning and so we want to have conversations with people who are educated in this work absolutely um reach out to us uh, uh, right now you can reach out to us on aloha at effieblue.com uh, we are working on um, our brand new website with our brand new communication channels but for now don't wait for that don't wait for us to to, to finish our stuff yeah. um, reach out to us aloha at effieblue.com um, if you're an expert um, about this stuff if you have you know solid opinions and this is like mm-hmm. your, your passion we want to hear from you yeah and so then we took a shift in the program and Ryan came out to speak. Mm. Um, so Ryan is the general manager east of a pleasure chest and they manage the the programming there specifically in New York and Chicago and other locations. And they have had a decade in the sex career, industry career. They have a passion for finding ways to teach the intersection between justice and joy and finding body autonomy and sex and workers rights and gender expansion and relationship and family building. And we were introduced, or we had a longer conversation with Ryan uh, because we did a podcast about them mm-hmm. and their fascinating story. And I know we keep teasing you with their story and, and we promise 2020 is the year that yes. that, that podcast is going to come out. Um, but Ryan is a birth parent for two children within an open adoption. And they came to talk about what that journey was like. And the biggest highlight or the takeaway for me was how real and emotional and intimate that sharing was mm-hmm. and the powerful impact that it had in the room. At the end of the of the event, we asked the audience, you know, to, to share out some of the highlights. And over and over, people kept saying, Ryan's story, Ryan's story. Um, it was really powerful. It was, it was. And the way they shared it too. I mean, the story is super interesting. You can make a, you can make a movie out of it easily. You don't even need to do any kind of like, you know, based on a true story, you can just tell the story and it'll be good enough. Um, I, the way they, the way they share it, the way they, like you said, so intimately, so closely, so articulately, mm-hmm. um, so calmly share the story and they carry you as you go to the highs and lows of, of what they've experienced. And I mean, the, 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 the quick recap of it is um, Ryan was amidst a um, sex, um, amidst a transition, um, f- um, female to male transition, on testosterone um, therapy uh eight years in um as as they were going through this they were told that uh, it's not possible for them to um uh, bear children that you know testosterone means that they're not fertile anymore um and they're not to bear children um so with this knowledge they carry on they they've made their mind up and they want to go through a transition and they've been taking testosterone for eight years and they fall pregnant um extremely unexpected um extremely unexpected um they fall pregnant 
and um, this whole bunch of new decisions have to be made and and they decide that they want to carry the baby full term and give it up for adoption. And the story, which we will um, publish next year, is incredible. The the way that they go about adoption and what the abortion, the adoption system is like, um, that how it's 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 mostly um, um, uh, it's mostly operated by religious organizations and in a very heteronormative way, um, and they you know the, the what they had to go through as a you know trans person who bore, who you know fell pregnant on testosterone who at that point was presenting as male so you present as male but now you're pregnant you're with a, your partner who's also identifies as male they think that their partner's a baby you're getting congratulated when you go out to eat for this baby it's <laughs> it's a mind, I mean it's a mind fact really and yeah. and the way you you know the way they tell it um is incredible so I mean the the, the story takes twists and turns and I on, almost don't want to give away like the, yeah. the spoilers um because there's some amazing twists and turns um the the part of it they were sharing with us um at consider this this year was really about um a the point of view of the birth parents, which is something that we don't hear a lot from. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really hear people sharing about um, their experience as a birth parent and the decisions they've had to make and what it is it like to be a part of an open adoption and what that's like for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely had misconceptions and, and there's definitely something that they talked about that was that I hadn't thought of, which is the stigma and the shame that we project onto birth parents who at some point decide to fall off the child's life and that they they are stigmatized and they are shamed for doing that and people sort of go around saying i can't i can i I just can't understand why somebody would fall off the give up their child yes and ryan even helped us redefine that language they that they did not give up their child for adoption right that they they gave their child into they wanted them to have a new family they wanted to be able to and still be in their lives i think that was part of what they were talking about too is being able to be still in their lives and helped us to your point, Effie, understand what are some of the constrictions in the system that don't actually allow birth parents to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that um, now that they're in a situation where... Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure, 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 yeah, thank you. So the, the, thing that I, the thing that I didn't know is that we talk about open adoption and we think that open adoption is something that you just come and go. Uh, actually, it's not. Open adoption... Uh, open adoption pretty much limits you to one or two visits a year um some letters which have to be read before they passed on and a birthday card here and a holiday card there that's essentially what an open adoption looks like and the parents the birth parents who eventually um let go of their kids or or or, or, or sort of decrease the contact is not because they don't care and they don't want to but because it's so painful to have such limited and controlled access to their child they do it because it's too hard there's something that they just can't sustain it's too heartbreaking it's too far in between and they just carry that hurt with them at all times and at some point it becomes too much and they let it go and ryan talked about the importance when they were finding a family for the child that they were carrying that it was important for them to craft an open adoption that allowed them to have access Mm -hmm. more than just a card and actually be a part of this family and that was really the call to action for them for for us to all consider is to redefine what family looks like and to say i am the birth 
parent of of this of this child, and and it's not the the primary parents. I'm not there every, every day, and I don't put them to bed every day. And they talked in a very deep and emotional way about how painful that is mm-hmm. to not be there for bedtimes and those things. But knowing that this was the right decision for the child, knowing that they have built now this amazing relationship with the family and that they are part of that family, um, and it really, I believe, number one, helped us rethink what parenting looks like and what family dynamics are Mm -hmm. but also they did a beautiful job of connecting their experience with polyamory Mm -hmm. and open adoption which i again i would not have made those connections without that storytelling but talked about how they leveraged their the lessons that they learned in poly to navigate through this painful process of loving without ownership of battling through jealousy of communication, of compromise, of understanding that multiple people can love someone and that needs are met with different people and that you want a community of people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, talking about that in the hardest times, remembering what their experience has been like in polyamory and really leaning on that and actually choosing a family that the the adoptive parents are in an open relationship so that all of those folks were leaning on the lessons learned through these relationships in order to navigate through this somewhat unprecedented new dynamic for them I thought was powerful absolutely absolutely and I you know I I do what I do and I still hadn't connected those dots and just sitting there listening to them go through it and connect the dots and say it's you know it's it's what's allowing as well it's what those ideas those those beliefs those skills and tools and those practices that we've you know we've engaged in all this time is now allowing us to have this flexible healthy dynamic family that is very much outside the norm, but works. Yes. And I remember, you know, in, in talking about this, you said one of the things that made sense to me was that there was a happy ending and that and that doesn't always happen with stories like this. Right. Stories that are complicated and stories that are nuanced and stories where the protagonist is not like, and it is not a romanticized Mm-mm. happy ending and it is, does not mean that it is not still have um, pain and hardship but it is still a happy ending, yeah. nonetheless. Yeah, it doesn't look like what you think it's going to look like, mm-hmm. but it is joyful. Yeah, and it works, yeah. and it's there's a lot to learn from there. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to learn from there. There's a lot to reflect on, and it was and it was a great note to to um to end the, the speakers on. Yeah, Ryan's a fantastic human being. Yeah, fantastic human Absolutely. being. And then, of course, we had to end with something a little fun because mm-hmm. that was, I think that brought everyone to like this emotional place. Mm-hmm. And then we wanted to kind of close out the night and the, and the event in a fun way. And so we had Cassandra Rose Vidal. Yes. I have only one word. Hot. <laughs> uh, yes, you got to see the video. Yeah. So a burlesque dancer and performer who did something, a performance that was both certainly sexy and provocative, but also just really political and poignant. Yeah. And um, I don't know how much detail you want to share. If we want to give a sneak peek. So I just want to set the scene. So the, <laughs> the song they um, performed to is called Ball and Chain. Uh, they were wearing this beautiful vintage wedding dress to start the performance off. It was beautiful. I got to see a, a closer look at it backstage. It's handmade, hand-laced, like it, beautiful wedding dress. Um, and the whole thing um, was essentially disrobing from this, you know, this this wedding dress as the music, mm-hmm. you know, to, to ball and chain. And the whole thing ended with them. The last thing they took off was um, their wedding ring and tossed it. Um, you have to see the, the 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 brilliant, the grace, the 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 sexiness of this whole performance. But I'm hoping what I've just shared with you gives you an idea <laughs> of like the the message. Um, where you know, it's not to say that we're not 
we think that marriage is bad. Jackie's <laughs> yeah, married. I was going to say it was funny because yeah. when I saw beforehand, we saw the video and I remember thinking, I'm like, okay, I don't want this to be, I am married happily. <laughs> I yeah, don't want right. this to be a commentary. But I think it was a commentary on systems, yes. on standards, on prescriptions. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, it, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was hot. Everyone was transfixed. <laughs> I was transfixed. I was like, <laughs> it was, I was right at the front row. Just like, I think I remember. Mouth Jackie, agape. Yeah, exactly. I remember Jackie going, we should put this on, on social media. And I was like, I don't want to even look at my phone right now. <laughs> I was like, yeah, uh, no, <laughs> I need to watch this. Uh, it was hot. It was amazing. Yeah. Uh, it was a good way to end it. it and, um, you know, it was a lot of stress. Um, organizing this it um, was we, you know <laughs> it, was. it was we had a we didn't have that much time yeah. and we had a staff change in the middle of it all um there were some you know highs and lows some people mm-hmm. had to drop out last minute um you know it, it was one thing after another and on the day all that was forgotten yeah yeah i think you know we closed out the event and i shared out that while this took you know two months potentially to plan it was actually more than 30 years in the making Mm. and that effie and i spent the majority of our lives following a prescribed path um that that was promised to make us happy and successful and we worked really hard to stay on that path and exceed expectations which led to success for each of us Mm -hmm but not happiness mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and and that we did the work of accepting that that life didn't did not work for us and Effie and I separately deconstructed our old lives and built new ones that were rooted in personal truth and created careers that were aligned with that truth and though we navigated through those journeys in our own ways at some point our paths crossed and we found another kindred spirit mm-hmm. and now we work really hard to create spaces where others can explore their truth and figure out how to untangle their lives and figure out how to be around other trailblazers who are no longer willing to accept what is prescribed and so i think for me personally while it, i felt really proud of the fact that we pulled together this beautiful event in not very long notice and had great impact in the room and, and hopefully for all the folks who who watched the video and listened to it but even deeper than that, the fact that you and I were, are continue to be able to create spaces for these dialogues and create spaces where people have opportunities to be thoughtful around what they have been told versus the path that they choose to take. And I feel really grateful to have been able to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's 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 uh, awe and gratitude is, is pretty much how I end up um, in most of the things that we do. Um, and also kind of uh amazement that we managed to pull it off <laughs> myself like we, we we managed that we did that wow okay um, and then on to the next on and then the literally next. the next day we're like all right what's the next event? yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> um and i think um this also is a good opportunity for us to think about um what we are you know what we are considering what yeah. are the things that we are considering um for ourselves what is like mm. what is our consider this moments of this year mm. um uh do you want to go sure um And actually, I think this ties in with the event. I think that I am considering or maybe reconsidering that I need to give myself permission to continue to grow and change my perspectives and evolve my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, the irony, of course, in that is that I am a change strategist. So I focus on change mm-hmm. all day, every day with, with the folks that I coach and, and the organizations that I work with. Um, and yet still, I think that I need to continue to be empathetic with myself when my the information that I have and the perspective and the experience mm-hmm. changes for me. And what I thought and felt five years ago is not true for me mm-hmm. in, in any case. And so I need to consider that I want to be in a space where I don't have to control the outcome Mm -hmm. and control my future perspective and just allow myself to grow. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, And for me, it's, 
similar actually i you know i i say i'm in the knowing business mm. meaning i'm in a position of you know guidance and coaching and or organizing and co-production and so i find myself often in in a place where i need to be the know the person who knows in a knowing place um and and sometimes i you know that takes up a lot of space and there isn't much left for curiosity right mm -hmm. you can't be knowing and curious at the same time you need to lean into the ambiguity you need lean into what you don't know and be comfortable not knowing um so that you can tap into curiosity to be curious and i for me it's definitely making sure that i actively and consciously cultivate curiosity and uh, you know not be knowing when needed but also make space like i just don't know i need to learn too you yeah, know i love that i love that i'm a facilitator also i train a lot in front of the room and when i train other people to train one of the things that i share out is that it's hard to stand in front of the room and feel like you don't know the answer right. and that an easy out hopefully for that is to say that's a great question <laughs> yeah right <laughs> which essentially means i don't know <laughs> but but that you then go about the work of getting the answer and right. i think that's part of what you're saying is is be curious and explore and then allow yourself to like follow your curiosity and get right. to know the Thing. right right exactly mm -hmm. and uh and, and echo what you're saying which is be okay to change your mind like yeah. having having um and and be vocal about that you know mm -hmm. i thought this i think this now mm -hmm. you know um and and just be in the path of curiosity uh, as i think we're where um, I would say stay on the path of curiosity. Yes, stay yes. on the path of curiosity. Yeah, and I think that's going to be what continues to drive us into 2020 is is we're going to explore 2020 from a place of curiosity. We're going to try new things. We're going to expand out to new cities. Yeah. We are going to try different types of events and different models and structures. We're going to be building uh, out this online platform. And so we're doing this in the spirit of adventure, in the spirit of meeting the need that we get. You know, one of the biggest highlights that, that we received at the the end of the event with someone saying that they listened to every podcast episode mm. and it was a pleasure to meet us and kind of see mm. us in person and they drove from Maine. They drove from Maine. Yes. So you know who you are. We're talking to you. We are grateful for you. We have talked about you and feel so grateful for the fact that you and many others do listen and are engaged and send us emails and DMs and tell us about how these conversations are impacting you wherever you are. And so we feel really have such gratitude around having this platform and are going to continue to enter into these spaces with curiosity. And so the things that you want us to talk about in 2020, because we're in the spirit we're right now, we're gearing up for that and, and we're going to be doing some new events and some new educator-led events and we're going to be exploring the space of webinars and lots of other things now moving forward in the coming years we want to hear what it is that you want from us mm -hmm. as well and so please let us know what you are curious about so we can tap into that as well um, and so we have a few call to actions for you and on, on top of letting us know what you're curious about if you are listening and you enjoy what you hear please rate and review and share this podcast it not only helps sh uh, us understand that that people are listening and, and that this is good work, but certainly it allows us then to talk with other folks about this work because the more folks that we have rating it, the more folks that we have sharing it and leaving reviews around what works, then we can have begin to expand this work out. Check out the previous episodes if you haven't already. Join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram so that you can be a part of the conversation and see what we have in store for mm -hmm. the coming year. Join us on Patreon if you want access to all the Consider This videos. If you want to see live what it was that we're talking about and you want to see Hilla the Killers sing that song about making love like a fish, then you got to watch the video. <laughs> That's a highlight. That's a highlight. <laughs> and to watch the video, you got to get on Patreon. And then again, just you know, please rate and review and, and share this podcast. Thank you for listening, friends, and stay curious. Stay curious. Curious Fox Podcast 
is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.